I really try to preach that simple and consistent skincare is better than throwing the kitchen sink at your face. And I'm just going to make sure for the record, we know that you do not need a 27 step skincare <laughs> routine. <laughs> not necessary. And so for those kind of just starting out and being like, okay, got to get it together. Like, what do I need to do? I'd recommend that you do two things every single day. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. I am so excited for this interview today. We're talking to the Dermy doctor, Dr. Fatima Faz. I've been following her for years on Instagram, and it's been really fun to watch her grow, thrive, and finish her residency in dermatology. She sprinkled in getting married and having two kiddos, all while finishing what took 12 years to do and, and to become a dermatologist. I cannot wait to dive into all the things today, but I wanted to start by having you introduce yourself for our listeners, and we'd love if you included why you picked dermatology as your career. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I love listening to your podcast, and for me, podcast is like a time to just relax on the road on my commute to work. And so I hope people find this episode fun, but also just really helpful. Um, so my name is Fatima Faz. I run an Instagram account, as you said, called Dermy Doctor. I was born and raised in Michigan. So shout out to my Midwest accent. If you pick up on it today, everyone says <laughs> I have a really hard A. <laughs> um, I had an interest kind of into going into medicine, you know, to begin with, because I unfortunately had to deal with the passing of my dad and my brother within a year of each other when I was a teenager. And so um, as traumatic as that was, it did tune me into the medical field as a whole. And I kind of just had this yearning to, as cliche as it sounds, provide healing to others. And I felt like that would give me some sort of closure. So that's what ultimately, you know, led me to pursue medicine. And then in medical school, I really gravitated towards dermatology towards the end of my training because it combined my two passions, one, one being medicine, um, but the other actually being art. And so I kind of gave up the dream of going to art school when all of this personal stuff happened to me. And I did end up pursuing an art minor in college, but it sort of came full circle when I found dermatology because it's such a visual field and an artistic field. Um, and so I really felt like I was able to combine those two things together and be in a really exciting, fresh, you know, field and specialty. Mm, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad and your brother, but um, I think that's really cool when you can use the loss to give you purpose. Absolutely. Um, I'm such a fan of yours. You've been disseminating really great information in a field that you're an expert in. And so I wanted to start though by quoting you on something that is at a more personal level. You said, to the girl that thinks she can't follow her educational dreams and start a family along the way, yes, you absolutely can. 
Can you talk about the highs and lows of this part of your journey? Yeah, you know, I feel like most people have this preconceived notion of what it means to be a woman in medicine and, you know, all the sacrifices that you have to give to do it. And during my personal journey, I really struggled with a lot of that. And I was always met with doubt and questions of, Fatima, where is a husband or a family going to fit into this picture? And how are you going to, you know, change to adapt to those things? And it was really hard. So I feel like today with the world of social media and Instagram, we can literally see those role models and realize, you know what? Yeah this girl could do it. I could totally do this too. And that's one of the reasons why I like to share little snippets of my home life is to really kind of talk to that young girl, the the girl that I was, who has a lot of this self-doubt and let her know, like, you can absolutely do both of these things. You're gonna face some hardships. There are going to be sacrifices. Things are going to have to give and take, um, but they're both possible. And so I hope by doing that, Um, That kind of gives these younger girls behind me that hope and that encouragement that I was yearning for when I was going through this process. I love that you brought that up because there's so many women right now saying, yes, okay, thank you. Like we we thought we were going to get skin recommendations and tangible (laughs) tips here, but really going full circle. And you've mentioned this on your Instagram account that family and support was such a big part of this journey. I mean, 12 years in school, like that's a lot of years. And your husband, Hassan, was fundamental in really being part of that village that helped you meet your goal. So along with your mom and your mother-in-law, our eyes just filled with happy tears as we read that graduation post. It's been so neat following you um, at the end of this journey right here. Well, it's really just about to start. (laughs) But can you talk to us about the support that your husband and both your own mom and mother-in-law provided really to make this happen? Yeah. So I feel like for many people, marriage seems to be like this item on your checklist and you got to cross it off. You got to find a partner and you got to get married. But marriage is not your checklist. It's a partnership. So meeting my husband in undergrad, I basically off the bat was like, hey, um, just so you know, I'm going to be a doctor. So (laughs) And I think I kind of think he appreciated the directness and he knew that I knew what I wanted and he knew what he was signing up for as a relationship, you know, advanced. So he really became my support system, my rock through my pre-med years and medical school, all the exams I took. Like he was on that long journey with me. So he was really happy for me in my good times. He was super sad for me in my failures. And so when it came to adding kids into the mix, he had already been a part of that chaos of becoming a doctor for so long that I didn't need to have this like long drawn out conversation of explaining the type of support I was going to need from him. You know, that was already set there and that um, expectation of, you know, having him as my partner and having him as my equal was there from the get go. And the same goes for my mom and my mother-in-law. They wanted grandbabies, but they had seen how much I'd done to get to those parts of my career. And so they wanted me to, you know, get to the end or, you know, my finish line. So when people say it takes a village, you know, that's mine. So I was very lucky to match into a residency program in Michigan and be able to stay around my support system and allow help 
basically to be there for me during this process. And so I really felt like my graduation wasn't just mine. It was my husband's and it was my mom's and it was my mother-in-law's. And so I feel like that's why it was so emotional for me. I really feel like I share this degree with all of them. That's amazing. I love um, love to hear that part of it. Before we move into asking you all the skin questions, and you guys don't worry, we're going to get there. I did want to ask about one more big part of you, your faith and your hijab. As you wrote in a post, my hijab is my choice, and I wear it proudly right above my white coat. To me, both of these pieces of clothing symbolize commitment, sacrifice, and respect. I don't need anyone's approval or reassurance that I'm doing the right thing. This is a matter between me and my Lord, and you are just simply witnessing the connection, honey. Do I get get stares? Yes all the freaking time. So you are a role model to so many women in this area. We can read and we can see the passion that you have. So I just wanted to take a second to talk about this and to ask if you've experienced negative comments or judgments for wearing your hijab and how you handle it. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I've had my fair share of you know, discrimination, stares, shrewd remarks, you name it. But I feel like I've learned to rise above those moments because for every negative encounter, I've truly had 10 positive ones to replace it. And the best is when I can sense a patient is apprehensive towards me when I walk into the room and they put a face to the name And then seeing them change over time as we develop our physician-patient relationship and their dermatologic issue starts improving, you know, that is the kind of passive ability to dispel stereotypes um, that I like to practice. And, you know, I also like to make sure that through my actions more than my words, I show others that, you know, Muslim women are capable of doing despite what preconceived notion you may have. And for me personally, I love questions. I welcome them. I welcome questions and curiosity because if we don't ask, then we don't know. And I think especially in a climate like today's, it's so important for us to embrace what's different and to check our own biases and just also be open to learning something new. And thank you for sharing that part with us. Everything that you just said, we're just nodding our heads over here and we honor and we love that part of you. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and head into the dermatology questions. Honestly, we got so many, like we were flooded with questions as soon as we put that up on Instagram. And I think something that's so hard for women is how much information's out there. We are learning about new skincare routines, the 27 steps that you're supposed to follow. Every beauty blogger, it sounds like, seems like they have to have the must-haves that you need. So we're hoping that you can help clear some of that up for us today. So the first question, we found that many of our followers, they're just a lot like Amy and I. We're pretty minimalistic when it comes to skincare. So what are the absolute must-haves and also the must-dos for women to add to their daily and also their weekly routines. Yeah, you know, I love that we're starting out with this first because 
I really try to preach that simple and consistent skincare is better than throwing the kitchen sink at your face. And I'm just going to make sure for the record, we know that you do not need a 27 step skincare (laughs) routine, (laughs) not necessary. And so for those kind of just starting out and being like, okay, got to get it together. Like, what do I need to do? I'd recommend that you do two things every single day. One is wash your face. Wash your face with a gentle face wash. It does not have to be fancy. A simple drugstore gentle face wash is good enough. Some people argue for once a day, others say twice a day, but really just wash your freaking face. Like get the oil off, (laughs) get the dirt off. That's the stuff that makes your skin look dull over time when we go to bed with Mm -hmm. our makeup on, when we're just not washing our face consistently. And you don't need to scrub your face. You don't need a really harsh scrub. Just a simple, gentle face wash on a daily basis will go miles. And I'd say the second thing is you have to pick a facial sunscreen to wear every single day. And this is not only for, you know, the benefits of preventing skin cancer, which, you know, everyone associates when they hear sunscreen, but it's really for anti-aging purposes and for brightening your skin. Just developing the habit of after you wash your face, and if you choose to add things to your routine, that's fine, but always finish off with putting a sunscreen on and get into that habit on a daily basis. Okay, well, I've already got to make one purchase so far, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm glad that uh, we cleared that up. Okay, so besides washing the face and the facial sunscreen, is there any other like, because, you know, it, it gets into the toners and the serums and the, yeah. and the masks, and it's really confusing as the consumer, even if you're trying to be minimalistic um, on what, like, what would be like the next couple items that you would recommend if someone wants to step up from that base? I would say after that, you want to incorporate a retinoid at nighttime, which hopefully we can dive into a little deeper if we're going to talk about wrinkles. I'm sure somebody's asked that. Um, But definitely incorporating a retinoid at nighttime and then considering some sort of exfoliation once a week. So, you know, when we talk about toners or essences or serums, those can have a lot of different ingredients in them. I personally think toners are just a hyped up thing and they're not necessary at all. Um, But you could certainly use a toner that has an exfoliant, like an acid in it to just kind of gently exfoliate that buildup on your face. But always, 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 if you're starting out and you're super confused, better to bring your list down, stay minimalistic and just simplify your life. Make sure you're washing your face on a daily basis and make sure you're using a daily facial sunscreen. And then from there, you start to build. But don't buy into the gimmicks of purchasing a 27-step skincare routine because all it will do is overwhelm you probably irritate your skin and then you're not going to follow through with it and it's a waste of money. Ooh, I love this so far. Um, while we're on the topic of products, can we talk for a minute about how to pick them? There are just so, so many brands on the market. Um, skincare is an enormous industry. How do you recommend finding the right one for each person listening? Yeah, I think this is definitely the frustrating aspect of the skincare industry. At the end of the day, 
it's a multi-billion dollar industry because it's not there to make our life simpler. It's there to make money. So it's confusing. And the problem too is that hundreds of cosmeceuticals are entering the market every single year and they don't have to undergo this regulation and strict testing by the FDA like our prescription products do. So just because a cream claims to do something on your skin doesn't mean it will. So when it comes to skincare, the name of the game is understanding ingredients and their purpose and how to pick what's right for your skin type. So one of the things I always hammer home is to not tie yourself to a specific brand because you love one product or, um, you know, tying yourself to a specific marketing claim. You need to really get in the habit of flipping over your skincare product and looking at the active ingredient section so that you understand what that product may or may not do for you. We're learning so much already. Thank you for this. So mm-hmm. as you mentioned, wrinkles, it came up yeah. 50,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> I figured. Oh, and one listener wrote that her kids have aged her 10 years. And I can totally relate to this being a mom for four years now. So especially around the forehead and eyes, like this is what our audience is wanting to learn about. So what can we do proactively? What products can we use? Where should we even start when it comes to wrinkles? Yeah. You know, so the unfortunate reality is that after the age of 20, a person produces 1% less collagen in their skin each year. So we're all just literally aging by the day. And (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately, I'm I'm hoping like no one is freaking out while they're driving. If you're listening to this, like (laughs) I'm going to get you through this. Just keep listening. (laughs) Um, you know, on top of that, we have environmental triggers like stress, you know, smoke, pollution, the UV damage from the sun, all of that on top of this just aging process, you know, is topped onto it. So that means our skin gets thinner with age, more fragile, sagging skin, wrinkles, and especially like we said, around the foreheads and around the eyes. And if you're a mom, I really don't need to say much else because really the kids do speed up that process for us. So When we talked about that basic regimen, you know, having a face wash and having a daily sunscreen, really the third product to consider adding to your regimen is integrating a retinoid into your routine at nighttime. So retinoids, what are they? They're just a group of vitamin A derivatives that are known for their anti-aging properties, but they actually also help with a bunch of things. So they work on a cellular level to basically help our skin turn over. They increase the collagen in our skin over time. And then they also inhibit or stop the proteins that break down collagen. So if there's one anti-aging or wrinkle busting cream to find, it's one that has a retinoid. But unfortunately, not all retinoids are created equally. And this is where, again, we get into a lot of the marketing claims. So I would say if you can see a dermatologist and get a prescription strength retinoid, Um, I would prefer that. Although now we're lucky to have a lot of prescription strength retinoids becoming over-the-counter. So you can find over-the-counter retinoid called adapalene in some products as well as retinol. You want to make sure you're using it at nighttime. And although we want, you know, theoretically, we want it to get rid of our wrinkles. So we think we need to just like 
shove our face into this bottle of cream, you don't want to do that because you will get irritated. Remember, it's going to turn over those skin cells. So you really want to start slow, maybe every other night or every third night to begin with. And you really need a tiny amount to your whole face. You're going to maybe notice a little bit of a slight peeling or maybe a slight irritation as you get started with it. That's normal. And as long as you're moisturizing with that, that can usually kind of help get you through that part of the cycle. But I will say, if you have not done the first two steps, you're wasting your time on a retinoid because sunscreen is going to help prevent those wrinkles to begin with. And we need to remember that UV damage breaks down our collagen, which is going to form wrinkles. So that's why I really hammer home having that sunscreen on first and then adding on the retinoid. Again, because we're focusing on maintaining our collagen and then trying to help build it up. I'm just like thinking about all those summers I spent <laughs> worshiping the sun right now. Yeah. Oh, they were good, I guess. They were good um, times. <laughs> good times, good times. Wish I would have put a hat on. <laughs> Um, to follow up on the wrinkle conversation, let's specifically talk about Botox. Yeah. I am not asking for a friend. I'm asking for myself because this has been something that I've been considering. Yeah. Um, but there's so much, there's so much that goes into it. So let's dive in. These are the questions we got. Is it worth it? How long does it last? Are there long-term side effects? Are there chances of negative side effects? Can we do it while we're pregnant? And breastfeeding. Oh my gosh. So first, I just have to say that I think Botox is like the scary thing that, you know, people are like, do I take the dive or not? And then once you do, you see the light and you're like, why was I so hesitant? And honestly, I notice a difference in my skin when I have Botox in and when I don't. And so, um, I'll, spoiler alert, those months when I was pregnant, I couldn't use my Botox. And so I definitely noticed a difference. I'll tell you. So Botox, when we, when we use the term Botox, it's really just a brand name referring to what we call in dermatology, botulinum toxin. It sounds scary when you hear the word toxin, but Botox is what we refer to as a neuromodulator. So it controls wrinkles or treats wrinkles by temporarily paralyzing the muscle it's injected into so that that muscle doesn't contract. So if you picture like the 11s on the forehead, that those are your eyebrows coming together over time. And the more you make that angry scowl face, the more those creases start to, your mom used to tell you, stop making that face. It's going to be that way. Kind of true. Same thing with smiling. Like we love to smile, but smiling is causing those crow's feet around our eyes, that constant contraction. So when we put Botox in, it's not that we're freezing that muscle. We're just preventing it from, from contracting very strongly. So Botox in general tends to last for most people anywhere between three to six months. And your wrinkles are not going to be worse after it wears off. Some people are you know, always concerned about that. In fact, this is kind of the concept of why people recommend what we call baby Botox or Botox for younger generations, like your late 20s into your 30s. Um, doing little sprinkles of Botox during this time while we don't have those permanent lines set in is helpful because it prevents those lines from setting in down the road. And so I always tell people, like, take a look at your mom or your dad. 
look at where their lines are etched in onto their face, like more than likely that's going to kind of be the way you age. And so if that really bothers you on your parents, then you can kind of be a little preventative with it as you start to notice you're seeing those lines form when you make your faces. Um, the most common side effect usually for people to expect is some sort of bruising from the actual injection. But the problem with Botox is that um, everyone's injecting it now, unfortunately. And so we're seeing a lot of unwanted side effects that are more injector dependent, meaning if it's injected incorrectly or it diffuses into the wrong muscle, you can have your eyelid droop, your eyebrow drooping. You can have a spocked kind of like Jack Nicholson eyebrow look. You can have a crooked smile, tons of ways for things to go wrong. And you have to remember that, like I said, it lasts three to six months. So that is not a cute look for a lot of people. Mm. So that's why I always you know, try to harp on the fact that as dermatologists, we are highly trained on the anatomy and the science of Botox. So while it seems like a really simple thing to do, there is an art to it. And so you really want to make sure you're choosing an injector that you can trust. And then lastly, unfortunately, we cannot use it while you're pregnant or breastfeeding. So it's something to just kind of save for your glow up afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's really interesting too, because one of my friends, so I'm a nurse and mm -hmm. she just went to like, a, honestly, like a weekend course to learn how to inject Botox. And I'm like, that seems pretty like short of a yeah. time. Um, but I know that a lot of people offer Botox done by people that were trained pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely a controversial topic, um, but I would say that at the end of the day, we need to remember that this is something that can have serious side effects if done wrong, and not to say that a dermatologist's injection will be perfect. Everyone will experience side effects or um, you know, mishaps, but it's really being able to um, walk your patient through that understand what to expect and understand how to maybe treat or correct those um, complications. Okay. So maybe staying away from those Botox parties in your friend's basement for a little bit. <laughs> yes, guys, don't do the Botox parties in the basement. <laughs> so at the time that this episode goes live, we'll have a brand new baby at home. So let's stay on this topic of pregnancy and postpartum for a minute. And a lot of questions came in, Dr. Fatima, on acne during pregnancy and acne after baby comes. So are we more susceptible to acne during these seasons? And are there any things that we can do to really help prevent? Yeah. You know, pregnancy we know brings on a set of hormonal changes and our equilibrium is slightly off as we're basically growing a tiny human. So some people will experience this pregnancy glow while others will tell you, oh my gosh, I've had the worst skin of my life while being pregnant. And acne during pregnancy is super common. So there's a few ingredients to consider adding to your regimen when you're pregnant, if you are kind of experiencing some acne or some discoloration. Um, obviously, one of the things we talked about earlier, retinoids, we don't recommend those during pregnancy. So a retinoid alternative to consider is something kind of new and hot on the market and people are talking about this a lot. It's something called Bacuchiol. It has a really funny name, but Bacuchiol is basically a plant extract. And there's been studies now that show that Bacuchiol can be just as effective as a retinol and even maybe more gentle, so not as irritating. 
Um, so that can really help with exfoliating and kind of uh, treating the acne. But another really common um, tried and true ingredient we use during pregnancy that's safe for acne prone skin or discoloration is something called azelaic acid. So this is um, an ingredient um, that you can get a prescription from your dermatologist or look for it in some products over the counter. But it works to treat that acne and also even treat dark spots or melasma. Mm, it really seemed like when I was pregnant during my three pregnancies, my oil kicked up. I noticed that, especially in my hair, like I had to change shampoos to help me strip that oil. Is that a thing that happens? Yeah, this definitely goes back to that same hormonal shift concept. So part of that pregnancy glow is actually increased sebum production. And sebum is just a fancy term for oil. So those hormones that we have end up triggering our oil glands to produce more oil. So that in turn, actually, for some people, is that pregnancy glow, that shininess that you get. But others, with increased oil, they become more susceptible to acne. So our oil glands definitely very heavy on the middle part of our face, but also throughout our scalp, which is why many women will notice that they're just a lot more oily in pregnancy. I'm like thinking back to a couple of weeks ago and I'm like, okay, that's why all of that pregnancy glow just looks so good, but you also have to wash your hair quite a bit more. Yeah. And you mentioned melasma. So this one is really, really hard for women, especially while pregnant, um, especially while pregnant in the summer. Like I noticed yeah. more discoloration with this summer pregnancy than my other pregnancies. So could you explain this condition to our listeners and if there's anything that we can do as women to help? Yeah. Melasma is probably one of the hardest things for dermatologists to manage, actually. It's you know, commonly referred to as this mask of pregnancy, but it's basically this hormonally driven discoloration that will usually present as like brown or kind of gray spots, usually on the forehead or cheeks or on the upper lip. And the problem really is that we don't have a cure for melasma, but our goal more so is to identify the type of melasma you have. Is it just on the top of the skin? Is it deeper into the skin? And that really helps us understand how to best treat it and then also give you uh, treatment options to prevent a flare-up. So one of the most important things I tell people to do, and I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, is <laughs> to make sure you're religious about your sunscreen. Because when I say wear sunscreen, if you have melasma, that doesn't just mean you know put on your sunscreen and you're good to go. You really want to add basically sun avoidance in there. So a wide brim hat, avoiding being outside in really peak sunlight hours, you name it. Because the biggest trigger that's in your control if you have melasma is your sun exposure. And then after that, I would really consider seeing a dermatologist because today we have so much good research now with prescription strength products, as well as medications now, even lasers and types of chemical peels that are appropriate. Um, that would help your melasma. But I would say most dermatologists would agree that they're not even going to start you on any sort of regimen if you aren't super, super careful about that sun exposure because you'll just end up right back at square one. And we will ask about your take on sunscreens at the end of this, but let's stay on this for a couple more minutes here. Any products or ingredients that we need to avoid 
during pregnancy. So you mentioned Botox. So Botox is not safe while pregnant, not yeah. safe while breastfeeding. You mentioned retinol. Um, can you just go into some more of these details? Yeah. So definitely no to the Botox or honestly, most procedures you want to try to avoid during pregnancy. There are a few you can do here or there that you, if you see your dermatologist, they may recommend for you. Um, but retinoids, especially because we know that retinoids by mouth, when we take it, it's called isotretinoin or Accutane, uh, is a brand name that people take, uh, for, for, um, acne, severe acne. We know that, um, it can cause major birth defects. So the cream version of it or retinoids, um, we basically say it's probably best to avoid it because we know the pill by mouth would cause a birth defect. So how much is actually getting absorbed? We're not really sure, but we're not going to recommend it certainly while you're growing a baby. And that's kind of the same concept when it comes to breastfeeding. Um, this is kind of a gray area. Some people will say it's okay to use while breastfeeding. Some will say it's best to just avoid it. So I usually tell people with retinoids for breastfeeding, it's really a conversation to have with your doctor. Um, in terms of other ingredients, another one would be something called salicylic acid. So this is a type of beta hydroxy acid that's chemically similar to, um, aspirin. And we know in pregnancy, we're not supposed to take aspirin because it can cause miscarriages or be harmful to the fetus. So a really, really large dose of salicylic acid um, could be harmful. But that being said, again, it's really difficult to quantify if like any of it at all is actually absorbed into our skin, especially in the form of a salicylic acid face wash, which is commonly what you see in a lot of acne face washes. So it's probably not something to lose sleep over if you do have it in your face wash, but just something to keep on your radar. I would say definitely, though, avoid uh, using a retinoid or a retinol product in pregnancy. Right. Um, and since we're on personal questions right now, and we did have a listener write in about this too, can you talk about if there's any ways to, to cure ketosis polaris? if that's mm -hmm. how you say it. Yeah. So, um, Is there any products out there that work or what should we be doing if we have this? Yeah. So I actually have um, keratosis pilaris. So I like this question. So easier than keratosis pilaris, it's also called KP. Um, but it's kind of a fancy term for that chicken skin that people notice, kind of those itchy or rough bumps that you can get on the upper outer arms or on the thighs. But the reason why it tends to happen is because it's just a buildup of keratin in our hair follicles. And it tends to be something that is out of your control. Um, so unfortunately, you can't cure it. But we do uh, have the ability to control it. And I say that because lots of patients will find relief and then they'll stop using their products and then it comes right back. Is what I personally do, honestly, I'm kind of lazy about keeping up with it. And so when I notice it getting bad, I kind of get back on my products. And the way you basically treat it is just exfoliate that keratin off. So there's two ways to exfoliate. Physically, you can exfoliate using like a rough sponge in the shower or a scrub type wash, but that can kind of be irritating to most people's skin. Or you can exfoliate chemically with acid. So that's kind of my favorite way, using a cream or a lotion that contains something like lactic acid or glycolic acid. And you want to make sure you're pretty regular with using it. But after doing something like that for about a week or so, you'll definitely notice that it smooths out. But again, if you stop, it tends to come right back. 
And with this, I know some women, I have the chicken skin too. So it's not too bad right now, actually. Um, But as I look down, but some people were like, oh, if you stop eating dairy or if you change this, this, and this part of your diet. So there's a lot of talk on that integrative medicine side and just changing our diets and changing different components of our life. So is this something that you agree with? Are there ever dietary swaps that you recommend for your patients instead of products? Yeah, this is a hot area of research. There's so many arguments for our diet influencing everything from acne to eczema to psoriasis. But the problem is it's really hard to establish solid evidence for cause and effect when it comes to these claims. But we do have research that supports that high glycemic index foods or foods with like a high carb count can really increase your blood sugar and that can worsen your acne. And the reason why we think this happens is because when your blood sugar spikes, your body produces insulin and that influences your hormone levels. And like we talked about earlier from our pregnancy discussion and oil discussion, those hormone levels can influence how much oil we produce. So when you have an increase in that sebum or oil production, that's kind of a part of that acne cascade that starts. So we also have evidence to tell us that some type of dairy, especially skim milk in specific, can also make acne worse. And this is also likely due to that hormonal change. So I usually tell people, you know, keep a food diary if you feel like your diet is making your skin condition flare and that way you can sort of pinpoint your trigger But personally, I do think that diet is just one part in the grand scheme of things when it comes to managing a skin condition. So booking an appointment with a dermatologist can take months sometimes. You guys are very popular. Um, (laughs) Is there a rule of thumb for um, how how often a person should be coming in to get their skin checked? Is it based on history? Obviously, they might be coming in for some acne issues. Can you give us a little coaching about coming in to see a dermatologist? Yeah. So what I tell people is if you have a ton of molds on your skin, um, establish with a dermatologist so they can do a baseline mold check and kind of recommend based on their evaluation how often they should see you. But I also recommend that if you do have someone in your family with a known history of skin cancer, then you yourself may be at an increased risk as well. So it's also important to establish with a dermatologist and let them know about that family history so that you can at least be coming in on a yearly basis just for a yearly check-in. But more than coming into the dermatologist, the most important thing is to empower yourself to get to know your skin. So I recommend once a month, kind of before you hop into the shower or bath and you're fully unclothed, just take a good look in the full-length mirror. We don't like to do this, I know, but just take a look and kind of do a scan of your moles and take note of anything that you think could be changing. And you can even have a partner take a photo of your back or hard-to-see places to kind of help you keep track of moles. But one of the most important clues for us as a dermatologist Um, in spotting a skin cancer is when the patient tells you that, hey, this spot has changed significantly over the past few months. And if you're really concerned, it honestly is best to just come in and see us because we're never going to be upset with you bringing a spot to our attention, even if we do take a look and tell you, nope, that's normal. Because what we hate is when you notice a changing spot and you ignore it, and then we finally see you and we wish you would have came in earlier. 
Um, so it's definitely something that's variable. But I would say one thing that is um, important to remember is doing your monthly self-skin check and just getting to know your own body. So that way, if for any chance you do have a change, you know, it's a significant change for you to bring it up to your dermatologist. I'm glad for that reminder. It's something that I've known I should be doing, but you just saying that I'm like, okay, something else to add on to that routine. (laughs) Yeah. So you brought up previously in this episode how important sunscreen is. And with summer wrapping up, we still had so many questions come in about sunscreen. So what are your expert thoughts on sunscreen versus maybe wearing protective clothing? And are kids' sunscreens actually different from adult brands? Yeah. So even though summer is wrapping up, sunscreen is honestly a constant in our household year round, but specifically sun protection during the warmer months is very important. And for me and my kids, we have kind of integrated sunscreen as a habit for when we're heading outdoors. So for example, you know, my daughter knows that if we're going on a walk or we're heading to the playground, she needs her hat and she needs her sunscreen on her exposed skin. And this is something I try to encourage others to do, making sun protection a habit for your kids now so that it's just a no-brainer when they become older. Because a lot of us honestly never cared about sunscreen, knew about sunscreen, or we were slathering oil on our skin when we were in the summer months. So, you know, kind of teaching this next generation of children to understand the importance of sun protection really starts at a young age because the sun damage that we accrue from our younger years is what's going to come back to haunt us in the form of skin cancer or even just that wrinkled skin as we get older. So I personally are using sun protective clothing for my kids as much as possible because it makes reapplying sunscreen just so much easier because you only have to focus on the exposed skin. So if you are shopping for sun protective clothing, you can just look for labels that say UPF 50. And UPF stands for ultraviolet protection factor. And this is basically a number indicating how the fabric is produced and woven to basically block those UV rays. But when it comes to the sunscreen itself, you know, in terms of babies versus adults, it's so confusing. And there's a ton of marketing that just takes advantage of the process. And honestly, I feel preys on moms and scares them into thinking that they need to buy this certain brand because it says baby or it says that it's organic, et cetera. So that this comes back to that point I mentioned earlier, you know, I encourage people to just flip over the bottle and look at the active ingredients. So for kids and babies in specific, most dermatologists are going to recommend a mineral only sunscreen because it's going to be less irritating on their sensitive skin. And we don't have to worry about this debate that you may have heard of regarding if chemical sunscreens are absorbed into the blood or not. So in terms of mineral sunscreens, the two ingredients to look for on your active ingredients is zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. Both can be listed, one can be listed, but those are the two things that you should see in the active ingredient section. So as long as that's what's on the back of the sunscreen, the front of the bottle doesn't really matter as much in terms of if it says it's for babies or not. Um, And in general, you wanna be choosing a sunscreen that also says broad spectrum and it has an SPF of at least 30. If you're going to the beach or doing water activities or getting sweaty, you also want to pick a sunscreen that will say water resistant on it. But the most important thing out of all of this is that you're actually using it and then you're also actually reapplying. 
Um, and when you're outdoors, that reapplication process usually has to happen about every one to two hours. I'm like a really crazy sunscreen mom. <laughs> because yes, I, love that. <laughs> I just like know how important it is. Um, I'm also half Native American, so my skin does like tan easier, mm-hmm. um, you know, than say my husband. And and so our firstborn too, his skin gets really tan, even though we're like applying and reapplying. Is that okay? Yeah. Or is like, if he's getting tan, is that too much sun exposure? Yeah. So technically a tan is DNA damage and DNA damage over time is what eventually mutates to cause a skin cancer. And that's not to scare anyone, but more to just make us wise also about what other sun practices we're doing. So for example, one of the big things I do is I check my weather app on my phone and I look at the UV index for the day. And this is a number that can help you understand how strong the UV rays are throughout the day. So we'll try to choose a time to go outside when the UV index number is lower so that I know at least that we're not getting as bad of sun exposure. And that tends to be, you know, earlier than 10 a.m. or after 2, 3 p.m. But really that midday sun is the strongest, and that's when you're going to be more likely to tan or burn. And then that's also why I kind of come back to the clothing and the hats as well. I think it's really hard to get kids into the habit of wearing hats if they weren't doing it when they were younger. So I always always have a wide brim hat for my kids and I always have it on them when they're outside because it just, again, becomes a habit and something that they're used to so that their skin is shaded from the sun in addition to the sunscreen so that you're kind of, you know, padding that um, process of getting a tan or getting a burn. And then on top of that, also remembering that sun protective clothing, if you're wearing a long sleeve shirt that has that sun protective clothing, the skin under it shouldn't be getting a tan. Um, so it's kind of a combination of things and it's exhausting as a mom, you know, to kind of keep on top of that stuff, which is why it really also factors in, you know, you want to factor in what time you're going outside, how you're seeking shade and all the other things you're doing in addition to sunscreen. But I really did love how you talked about it as a habit. I've seen your daughter <laughs> like put her sunscreen on before. And same with my boys, because they go to daycare and they're used to like before they go outside, everyone has to put sunscreen on. Um, they let us put their sunscreen on like simple, like it's a no brainer. If you're going outside, you're getting sunscreen on. So yeah. I love that. I feel like we could ask you a million and one questions <laughs> and you've been so generous with us and our audience audience. So thank you so much for coming on and please tell our audience where they can find more of you. Thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun. I'm talking to you from my closet and my children are asleep and I I feel like I could keep going, but we'll wrap it up. Um, (laughs) But there are a lot of these topics that I frequently cover on my Instagram page. So you can find me there at my handle. It's dermy underscore doctor or on my website, www.dermydoctor.com. So thanks again. Awesome. And we'll make sure to take these in the notes below. So thank you again so much. If you do have any other questions that pop up, she has so many resources. We look through those squares all the time and I'm like, oh, I had this question and now I finally got the answer. So thank you for making it so easy to understand and for answering all the questions that we had today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.